Welcome to Political as Heck, a podcast where we discuss Utah politics and policy. I'm Corey Assel, joined by Utah State Senator Todd Weiler, who's back from sickness. Hey, Todd. Hey, Corey. We barely managed. We lost like yeah. half our listeners. Yeah, I, it, was, <laughs> it was sad. Well, we want to uh, welcome our special guest, Senator Lincoln Fillmore, today. Absolutely. Hi. We are absolutely delighted to have uh, State Senator Lincoln Fillmore on the podcast. Among other things, he's here to talk about his uh, att- attainable housing bill. So. Senator, before we get started, would you mind sharing a little bit about yourself? Which Senate district do you serve? How'd you get your start in the legislature, all that? Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate being on. I'm a fan of the show. Um, I I represent uh, Senate District 17, which is uh, South Jordan primarily, a little bit of West Jordan and uh, some of the north part of Harriman. Um, You know, I I got into politics at a young age, you know, and I kind of came up through the Salt Lake County Party. I was a ledge district chair and a region chair, um, served on the executive committee and uh, just, you know, been a delegate every year. And when uh, a, a spot opened up, I cared enough about some issues to try to uh, try to run. I didn't think I would win, um, but I, you know, I, uh, I, I wanted to make sure that issues I cared about were addressed and it, it, delegates liked me addressing those issues, I think. And, and uh, I won and then was uh, reelected again in, in 16 and 20. Very cool. So this is your fourth term then, huh? Your fourth? Uh, I, it's going to be my third. I, I'm, because uh, you know, I came in partially. And so I've had, right. I'm in the, in the middle of my second full term. And Lincoln, I know you're married. You've got two kids. You're a small business owner. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you, because I'm curious, what, what do you like about uh, Political as Heck podcast? Uh, I really like you guys uh, know a lot about what goes on um, behind the scenes. Um, and I appreciate that. I think other other political podcasts I listen to that are focused on Utah don't have that knowledge, and I, I end up thinking that they don't they don't really know what they're talking about. <laughs> I'm not I'm not dropping any names. But. Uh, well, that's nice. Well, good. Well, let's get started because we got a lot of good stuff to talk to you about. So there's no surprise, but the cost of housing and the availability of homes has got to be one of the top two or three issues in the state right now. Kids are growing into adults, and they're looking to raise their families, and we also have more people moving into the state than moving out. Uh, according to the Gardner Institute at the University yeah. of Utah, the state is short about 31,000 units. So, Senator Fillmore, you have a bill aimed at addressing this issue. We were hoping you could walk us through it, uh, let us know what you have in mind, and, and how it might work to alleviate yeah. the, the housing problem. Thanks. Uh, I don't have a bill yet. Um, but um, that bill comes from the fact that I was named this year to chair the Commission on Housing Affordability uh, in the Senate. And so carrying a bill is just kind of part of that responsibility. So we worked with that commission over the course of several months over this year to try to come up with some, some, uh, some policy changes that might, uh, that might have an impact. And I started from the, uh, from the premise that housing, just like anything else, is a question of supply and demand. And when demand is high and supply is low, prices are going to go up. Uh, it's interesting that since I was appointed the chair of this commission in May, housing prices have fallen by about 20%. Um, and of course, that's not anything that I have done, but uh, it's just a change in the equilibrium of housing, your demand versus supply. I think the core of what our, the challenge that we have is, is that the state of Utah really provides a lot of incentive for commercial development and for um, corporate development, right? Uh, our, our economy is very good. We've got a, uh, a good government, a good e- economy, a good society here in Utah, a good tax structure. We're bringing in people 
uh, from around the country are moving here. Uh, people who grew up here want to stay here. So we have a lot of people coming and we provide uh, a lot of incentive. And I'll give you an example. Um, commercial property pays full freight on their property tax. Residences, your primary residence, you got a 45% discount on your property tax. A retail commercial development pay full freight on property tax and then also generate sales tax revenue for the city. So it, just as a purely financial transaction, it makes a lot more sense to approve commercial development than it does for residential development. And I think that's one reason why over the last few years, uh, residential property has risen about 50% in value while commercial property has only risen about 10. COVID has some things to do with that too. You know, uh, their commercial space, particularly corporate office space is not used as once, much as it once was. So there's a greater supply of that, but certainly the incentives that the government provides has an impact in the marketplace. And I just wanna make sure that we're providing incentives um, to increase the supply of housing as long as uh, to be able to match that demand. So we can get to some specifics since that's what you asked for the first time. Lincoln, I'm, I'm really glad you addressed the 45% discount. I think, um, I think the majority of our constituents don't realize that. I don't, I, I feel like, you know, they look at their property tax, they see that they're going up, you know, each year and they, they don't realize that they're getting a 45% discount. And I'm glad you both mentioned the 31% or 31 thousand housing units that were short because isn't that half of what we were short just about four or five years ago i, I remember hearing about over sixty thousand short just a couple of years ago a lot of housing has been entitled but it you know there was some supply chain issues so there are a lot of reasons why the supply isn't where it needs to be i just want to make sure that we're not letting government stand in the way and so i've got some couple ideas uh, so i had a i had a city council person in a in a city come to me and say that uh, they thought they thought your bill was a giveaway to the developers, and I was like, "Oh, that's interesting." But I would love to hear you walk through it because I I, yeah. I know you to be a, a pretty free market guy. So well, and I and yeah, and since he brought that up, so I'm hoping you can work this in your answer. I, I've met with three of my city councils that I represent, the cities I represent, and they've all said, "You guys need to stop sticking your nose in our planning and zoning and let us do what we do, and you do what you do." So I would love to hear your response to that. Uh, sure. Uh, so the first and I think the most important part of the bill would be a streamlining of the municipal approval process um, so that we would define a statewide uniform standard for a process that cities follow in order to approve development. It doesn't take away any city rights to approve what they want to approve, to zone how they want to zone, but it would say that once you make a decision and you're working with uh, an, a developer's application to develop housing or commercial property or whatever it is, but um, you would go through a process and the city council would go through, uh, make whatever decision they wanna make using the same criteria that they use today. But once that decision is made, then the development is approved and developers can go forward with that knowing that it's approved. Um, if the developer wants to make changes, they'll have to come back and get another approval. But as long as, as long as, uh, the property is being developed consistent with what has been approved by the city council, it's approved at that point and everything else just becomes administrative. Uh, in that way, I think we really can shorten the timeline and the uncertainty that sometimes happens. In, in that way, time is money, particularly when it comes to real estate development. So I want to be, be able to shorten the time frame, make it uniform and predictable so that uh, developers know what they're getting into and they know that they can go forward. The second piece of that, it builds up on something that the legislature passed uh, last year, but really dates from 1996. And that is that the requirement that cities develop 
plans for affordable housing. And uh, under the law, it's up to the city what that plan looks like. There are some guidelines, but the city gets to decide where they're gonna put affordable housing, what affordable housing means, uh, but they need to have a plan and they need to stick to the plan. My bill would call for stiffening the penalty if cities do not adopt or stick to the plan that they've already made. Um, those are the two big parts of the bill. There'll be some other things to try to uh, uh, make some progress that the legislature has made previously on um, like uh, accessory dwelling units, you know, um, your, your mother-in-law apartments that might be in the basement, things like that. Make some technical changes to some things that were put in last year. And then I'm also the, we're also running bills on uh, deeply affordable housing that will call for, uh, you know, some money for social services and some help to the Only the Walker Housing Fund. We really hope that we can make a dent, but everything we're trying to do is to, is to be market-based and to try to make it so that there are proper incentives to increase the housing supply. Gotcha. So on your first element, could you explain to us, do you see that uh, one of the main issues is uncertainty for, for developers moving forward? I mean, I, I guess they're getting called back by cities or yeah. city councils are changing yeah. their minds. Is that Sometimes what you're saying? You have to go, so you'll get an approval and then you'll go uh, make, you know, the, the next part of the, the further details of your plan. And you'll have to go back to the approval to get back to the city council to get approval on that yet again. And you know, city councils, they take a long time. There's public comment periods, things like that for stuff that's already been approved. Uh, but you know, now you just come through and say, look, the grass is gonna be uh, you know, in these specific areas rather than these specific areas. And, and those really aren't part of the zone plan, but if city councils reserve for themselves the right to, uh, to say yes or no at every step of the development process, that just increases the risk, it increases the cost, it increases the time. That makes sense. So then on the, on the second element, you know, this same person that I was talking about kind of argued that putting pressure on cities is essentially kind of the, the state trying to usurp local authority in, in the same way that the federal government tries to override states and that sort of thing. What, what do you say to that argument? I, there's absolutely no basis at all to that argument. Uh, we're not making any changes to what affordable housing plans are or um, what cities have to put in them. But just to say, you guys, the city, I would uh, talk to your city council, just to say, you guys determined what your moderate housing plan is. Just stick to that plan, then you're fine. But if you, if you don't adopt a plan, if you don't make progress on the plan that you adopted uh, to the point where people cannot find affordable housing inside of Utah, then I, that creates a problem. And then the consequence is there, there'll just be some, some financial consequence for cities that if cities are not willing to be part of a statewide solution, then the cities are not entitled to the same kinds of, of benefits from the legislature in terms of funding for, uh, for roads and local infrastructure. Just to finalize this, uh, this topic, what else do you think is needed? I mean, from your standpoint, this, here's some ideas that you have that, that make sense. What else do you think is, is gonna be needed for the housing situation? Uh, some things that we worked on that probably are not ready for prime time that won't come would be something like uniform development standards for um, the ancillary parts of, uh, uh, of a development. Like how wide does the road need to be? There's just such wide variation. How deep does the road need to be? Um, you know, you go to, to city A versus city B and there's just kind of some randomness about that. So we've been working with the League of Cities and Towns and with property owners to try to find a right solution there. I'm not sure we'll have a solution in time to get something passed on that for the current legislative session, but it's something that we'll work on in the Housing Affordability Committee over the, over the course of the next year.
And, and let me just add one other thought. Um, the government can't and shouldn't be able to solve all problems. I mean, th this is an economic problem. We have more we have more people who want housing than we have housing and developers have responded. And, you know, I, I read the paper yesterday that a popular, you know, business was closing so that it could become housing. And, you know, the, the free market is going to do a lot more, I think, to respond to this current crisis than the state government will. And I think that's appropriate. Let, let me just say that I'm not saying that we can't be supportive and incentivize proper growth, but um, we don't live in a, in a state or a country where the government should should feel like it has to solve every problem. Yeah, yeah that's right. That's right. But uh, again, <laughs> one of the problems that I'm trying to, to work on and address is that our government has played a role here. Like we put our thumb on the scale in favor of commercial development. And I, I, I just am looking to try to balance that out by providing enough incentives so that we, we can match it on the side so that people actually have a place to live when they move to Utah because they found a job. So let's uh, let's broaden the scope a little bit. So outside of this bill, Senator Fillmore, what do you see as the top issues? You, you named the you named the water, but what do you think is uh, what are the top issues on tap for this legislative session? And you know what are the important questions that need to be answered? Do you think? Yeah, so you guys have talked before about the the school choice bill that's going to be introduced up this year. I think that's going to be a really important topic of conversation. Um, uh, and I think uh, taxes in the state budget, uh, uh, you know, that's going to occupy a lot of time. It'll take. Um, it'll take a lot of our time and focus. You know, I hope that we land on a, a good decision uh, when it comes to taxes, right? That we're uh, returning, we've collected a lot more money from taxpayers than the state needs to operate its business. I hope we can return that back to them in a way that will really help to strengthen our economy for the future. Nice. All right. Any last thoughts, Todd? No, I really, I, I'll just tell you, I really appreciate working with Lincoln or Senator Fillmore. He's always a voice for a reason and um he's very articulate and uh he's he's just uh he's a good friend and he's a good ally i think he does a great job for his constituents so i just want to hats off to you lincoln I, I i'm glad that you're there so hats off to you as well i'm going to tell a little story before you let me go i'll try to make it fast the night uh, i was elected i got a, a long slate of text messages from todd weiler uh, who got my numbers like, here's everything that I wish I had known when I was a first year senator. And he had like a top 10 list of things, you know, about how to get along with colleagues and how important it is to get along with colleagues. And you don't hold grudges, right? So it's like, uh, you know, people are going to vote for their constituencies, but you can work and get along with everybody. It was great. It, it really helped start me off, I think, on a good foot in the legislature. I, I assume Todd does that for more than just me. It's a great service that he provides. Ah, uh, thanks. You're very kind. <laughs> Stuff. Well, thank you, Senator Fillmore. Thanks a lot for thank joining you guys. us. And thanks for yeah. being a listener. And we uh, we love your feedback anytime. Thanks. I look forward to listening to the second half of the podcast. Great. Have a, have a great you. session. Good luck this session. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. The Salt Lake Tribune this week, it was, it, was like, it was like they were thinking they'd crack the Watergate case on their way to a Pulitzer Prize because... The Utah Debate Commission found that Senator Mike Lee's team had gained access to tickets for the Senate debate back in the fall. If you remember that, they had a, it was a, the Lee-McMullen debate, and Mike Lee's team got more tickets or whatever, and so he was able to get them apparently five hours before the McMullen campaign. And this kind of stems from the observation that Lee did have more supporters in the room than did McMullen. I don't know. But anyway, the, the trip plastered this revelation all over social, social media for days, and KSL and some others picked it up. And, and it's almost like they really – felt like they uncovered a scandal here. And to me, it's, it's a head scratcher. 
because let's just level set. First of all, Doug Wright was the moderator, okay? He directed the crowd multiple times, I mean multiple times, not to clap or respond in the, to the debate in any way until the end. So, you know, it's kind of puzzling what advantage Senator Lee would have even had by having more people in the room. That's for one. But second, the whole episode is like completely unremarkable in terms of like typical campaign organizing tactics. I mean, every single campaign since the beginning of history is like trying to pack rooms and fill auditoriums at all the events and venues like throughout the entire campaign. I mean, so I guess I just say boo-hoo that McMullen's team wasn't as savvy as Lee's team to get the tickets. I mean, it's kind of like basic blocking and tackling and, uh, and, uh, and what uh, I guess the, I mean, the tri Tribune's just performing another drive-by hit, hit job on Mike Lee because they can't stand him, obviously. But, you know, McMullen campaign, they belly flopped. So sad. And honestly, it doesn't make any difference for the campaign. And it certainly doesn't make any difference for the actual result. So anyway, my response is, come on, man. But I, what do you think, Todd? <laughs> well, first of all, uh, I think KSL and the Tribune have failed to note throughout the entire campaign that Mike Lee also had more supporters than Evan McMullen statewide, which is why he won by double digits. Uh, that's just a little cheap shot. But um, I, I think it's moderately interesting because even though Doug Wright reminded the crowd several times that they weren't supposed to react, they were reacting and they clearly were for Mike Lee. Now, uh, I, I personally believe that less than 2% of the voters probably watched the debate and and the, those that watched were probably already committed to Mike Lee or Evan McMullen. I doubt there were more than a handful of people watching that debate that were truly undecided. I'm sure there were some, but not not a lot. But I don't think that that changed the outcome of the election. Um, and, and I and I agree. I think campaigns are competitive. I like to tell the story. Years and years ago, uh, Kurt Bramble ran for the state senate against Becky Edwards's father. Um, they both lost that race, but, um, or my, yeah, anyway, might've been the state house, but in any event, uh, Becky and her sisters showed up at like 6 AM at the school in Provo to put out their dad's signs and every inch of the sidewalk or the grass was already covered with Kurt Bramble signs. <laughs> His team yeah. had shown up at like 3:30 AM. And so one of Becky Edwards' sisters started moving some of Kurt's signs to put up her dad's sign. Of course, Kurt came out and had some words with her, and she ended up jumping on his back. One of my favorite stories to tell. Um, but yeah, campaigns are all about trying to get that leg up, get that advantage, be the first one. So I don't fault Mike Lee at all. I maybe fault the debate commission that they didn't have a better process in place. But I, I, I and I'll disagree with you a little bit. I think it is an interesting story after the fact. So, I mean, I guess so. But uh, what's to me is what 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 is just really disappointing is there's a hundred other things that could have been interesting that you know of course yeah. they weren't interested in looking into like anything in the history of uh evan mcmullen you know <laughs> he hasn't had a job for however many years how does he afford his life oh. you know how about his uh his nonprofit? how he's been funneling money to himself where does that come from has he ever spent any time in utah other than being at byu you know like there's just so many questions that were never even asked let alone answered and yeah but uh, but this was like the scandal of the decade. I don't yeah. know. And and what did he do when he worked for the government? Because I I've heard a lot of people say that right. he yeah. overstated his role. So. All right. So this week, Utah Congressman Blake Moore excitedly announced his appointment to the prestigious House Ways and Means Committee. Ways and Means is the tax writing committee, and it is pretty powerful. Uh, it also handles healthcare entitlements and international trade policy. 
So Todd, I've dealt with Ways and Means Committee a great deal throughout my career. In fact, we talk to them all the time. And uh, you know, I have several friends who, who work as staff. I think it's a big deal that uh, the Blake Moore was able to land this spot in only his second term. So I congratulate him on that. I think it's, I think it's kind of cool for him. But it does raise some eyebrows. And I think you mentioned this somewhere that uh, it, it is interesting that he... I may have tweeted about it. So why don't you tell us about it? So he dropped the House uh, Armed Services Committee. And of course, traditionally, that's been an important uh, perch for the first district because of Hill Air Force Base. And obviously, Rob Bishop uh, was on the committee, and so was Jim Hansen. So we've had we've had a presence there for at least 30 years. But anyway, what did what did you say? And what's your take on it? Well, I so look at ways and means. I'm sure this is very flattering to Blake Moore to be in just starting a second term and to be invited by the leadership of the House onto the most powerful you know committee in 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 the House. And so I think it's good for Blake Moore. I have a hard time, and maybe it's good for Utah in the aggregate. I have a really hard time seeing how it's good for his district or for his constituents. And um, the the unwritten rule in Utah politics is the congressperson for the first district is supposed to be the lead uh, defender of Hiller Force Base. And when Blake Moore ran for that seat two and a half years ago, uh, he clearly understood that role. He clearly campaigned that that would be, you know, his job. And then at the first moment that he, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, gets a little bit of attention from Kevin McCarthy, he basically abandons that role. And so, you know, I tweeted that I was gobsmacked, and I, I just think that's a fun word to say uh, that he would leave the Armed Armed Services Committee. I think this will be a huge issue, uh, you know, in in two years uh, or a year and a half, or, you know, next year when he runs for reelection, if he has a a legitimate opponent, I, I think he's going to have a hard time articulating how you know he's helping uh, Northern Utah. And and I also tweeted, you cannot overstate the importance of Hill Air Force Base to the economy of Northern Utah. If that base were to close, every every house maybe this is good today. Every house would probably go down thirty percent in value because you would have a mass exodus. Um, you know, we would we would lose tens of thousands of jobs because it's not just the government jobs on the base. It's the Northrop Grumman and the and the BAE and lock uh, Northrop uh, uh, Northrop Grumman and I mean literally thousands and thousands of high paying jobs that surround that base and industries that surround that base and so. I started getting texts the moment this, you know, and he was kind of, uh, you know, out on social media, kind of thumping his chest. Look at me. I got on Ways and Means. Uh, and I'm sure, again, this is probably good for his career. It's probably good for his fundraising. I just don't think it's good for his constituents, especially his constituents who are tied into Hill Air Force Base. And I know that that military support community up there was absolutely shocked and dismayed that that he made that decision um, and that he basically lay, left them naked and alone in the cold is how they feel. And we should give some people some context in that uh, just as an outsider, you hear the term, you know, house armed services and you think, well, this is the military committee. And so it's probably a lot of foreign policy. And, and, and it's true that there is some foreign policy for sure. But on the inside the halls of Congress, if you're on House Armed Services or Senate Armed Services, I mean, it's basically viewed as like you're there to protect your base. Yeah. <laughs> and if yeah. and if folks can recall, Jim Hansen was on the BRAC commission. BRAC was a was a systematized effort to close down bases because, hey, frankly, there's too many bases in America. And, uh, you know, that's going to come around again. 
and being being on uh, armed services, being on the BRAC commission uh, as in its new, newest iteration, whenever that happens, is like it's going to be very important to keep Hill because it's been on the chopping block in the past. Well, and there's also important decisions being made about, you know, like the next, uh, you know, you know, uh, you know, the, what's going to replace the, the next, uh, you know, fighter, I'm sorry, air, air uh, F-35 or, or whatever, yeah. and, and GBSD. And there's a lot going on right now. And, and, you know, we have four House members and none of them are on uh, armed services. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to criticize Burgess Owens or John Curtis about this because they're, they're not representing the first district. And there was some talk about splitting Hill Air Force Base between Blake Moore and Chris Stewart's districts. And we, ultimately we didn't do that, but I, I think he's going to, you know, again, if he has a legitimate opponent, I think he's going to have a hard time articulating how this was good for the first district and how he did abandon uh, his constituency. All right. And just uh, again, for some context, just so everyone, you know, just to let you know. So Chris Stewart, he's on the uh, House Intelligence Committee. Uh, that's a closed door committee, does intel. He's also on uh, House Appropriations. I was a little surprised that he didn't land a subcommittee chairmanship, but uh, I haven't had a chance to talk to him about that. Uh, Congressman Curtis, he stays on the Energy and Commerce Committee, which he joined last Congress. And that's also a prestigious committee. And it makes a lot of sense with Silicon Slopes because they cover a lot of tech stuff. And then Congressman Burgess Owens, he's on judiciary, which obviously is going to ha have an elevated importance now for investigations. You know, Jim Jordan's leading that committee and there's going to be a lot of investigations of the, Bi uh, you know, the Biden White House and, you know, all of their scandals. So, and he's on House Ed and Labor. So anyway, yeah. just so folks know. And I'll give you an example. Um, Mia Love was on the banking committee. That was probably really good for Zion's Bank. <laughs> I don't know if it, you know, helped the people in Saratoga Springs and Eagle Mountain, but it's hard to not be able to, I mean, it's impossible to not connect the dots between being on House Armed, Armed, Armed Services Committee and Hill Air Force Base. And so yeah. that, you know, a kindergartner can connect those dots. So that, that's all I'm going to say. All right. Good stuff. So the session begins this week. Good luck to you, Todd. Any final, final words before it begins? You know, it's uh, it's more of a marathon than it is a sprint. So the session kind of starts off a little bit slow the first couple of weeks. And then I, I, I kind of compare it to the frog in the water. So, you know, on Tuesday, it'll be a, a nice warm bath. And by sometime, you know, uh, three or four weeks from now, I'll be boiling and cooked and not even realize it. So anyway, that's 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 all I'll say. <laughs> Good stuff. All right. Good luck. It's all the time all we right. have today. Thanks, Corey. Bye-bye. See you.